Hello and welcome to The Case Files. I'm Kate Chabot and over the course of this podcast series, I'll be bringing you the true life stories behind some of the UK's most fascinating legal cases, all told with unparalleled access to the people and lawyers closest to events. Over the last decade, countless victims of historic sexual abuse have come forward to tell their stories. They can be hard to listen to. Slater and Gordon's lawyers have worked with thousands of survivors during this period, making sure their voices are heard and that offenders, as well as the establishments that turned a blind eye, are held accountable. We're going to devote this episode to a remarkable woman who we're calling Laura. It isn't her real name. As a child, she was groomed and sexually abused by a teacher at a prestigious music school. It's a shocking and painful story which Laura tells with real courage. We've allowed her to tell her story in her own words, and at times it's quite graphic. But it's a real insight into how a child, whatever their background, can end up being betrayed by a predatory adult and then let down by the institutions that are supposed to protect them. This podcast was created to give people an opportunity to tell their stories, to help raise awareness of issues and to help listeners to get an insight into the events behind the headlines. Because of this, we haven't tried to sanitise anything Laura says and some of what you hear you may find disturbing. I had no idea that a grown man would be interested in a half-grown girl. So that's why I didn't realise. So he gave me the shoulder massage and then he said it would that he's going to give me a whole back massage and it would be better if I lay on the floor so I lay down on the floor and he was massaging my back and I didn't want it but I couldn't think then in the next episode of the case files we're going to explore more fully how abuse like this can happen we'll talk to Laura's mother for her perspective on the case as well as a lawyer from Slater and Gordon and two women who work supporting victims Many of the abusers are like you and I. You would not know just by looking at someone. Abusers are across all cultural, racial and economic divides. But for now, let's focus on Laura. She was a very bright child who started playing the violin at the age of four and practised for hours every day. Her experience at primary school had been difficult. She'd often been bullied. So when, in the late 1980s, she won a place at one of Britain's most successful music schools when she was only 13 years old, it felt like a new start. I was excited because I had read all of the Enid Blyton stories and I thought that it was going to be like an Enid Blyton story and I was really looking forward to getting to know the different personalities of different girls and hadn't really clocked that actually there was going to be boys there as well. I thought it was going to be like... A boarding school story. And what was your first impressions when you got there? So, from my point of view, I guess the main thing was that I wasn't being bullied anymore. So, that was basically a vast improvement for my day-to-day life. So, yeah, all the things that might have been difficult there just sort of rolled over me because they were so much easier than before. So... So did you settle in okay? Yeah, I felt like I did, especially compared to before. I mean, so I was used to never being spoken to, for example, at school before. People wouldn't speak to me. Um, And then suddenly there were loads of people there. They did speak to me, so... You felt good? I was just like, oh, well, this is a lot easier, so, yeah. (laughs) Cheatham's Music School is a prestigious boarding school that only admits students who pass an audition. 
For a talented violinist like Laura, it would have provided her with opportunities for a career in music she would never have got anywhere else. The historic grounds and building were almost used as Hogwarts in the Harry Potter films, and the school and its pupils were regarded as exceptional. For Laura, vulnerable from years of bullying and with ambitions of a future as a successful musician, it was a dream come true. Then, after her first year, she was moved to be taught by a new teacher called Christopher Ling. He was new and trying to build his reputation. The first year I had a different teacher and then he said that I wasn't working hard enough. And uh, therefore... Was that they, fair? I... Yes and no. So on the one hand, I didn't want to do the work that I was supposed to do, so I would do different work. <laughs> Um, but I was only 13, and I think, personally, that at that age, it's really not very surprising that a kid would just be, like, very mildly uh, rebellious. And so I don't really think it was fair, actually. I think that, really, it was Mr Ling who potentially requested that to happen. I don't know that, but that's what I think in retrospect. So you were given a new music teacher in yes. Christopher Ling. When yeah. you first met him, what did you think? Mm. Well, I mean, my first actual lesson with him, well, he had a very different teaching style than the previous teacher, um, and he asked me to play a piece, and then he said how I finished it, and then he just sort of said how absolutely terrible it was, and it was really pretty much the most awful thing he'd ever heard. And and so then he um, was telling me basically that it was awful, but that if I worked very, very hard with him that I had the potential to be good. And so basically he um, wanted, to, I felt in certainly in retrospect that he wanted to crush me and then build me up, but only through him, if you see what I mean. So that was the beginning of his kind of grooming process. But as it happened, I didn't, I didn't actually believe him because, well, because I was part of a sort of cohort of, players of my age, and I knew that I was somewhere in the upper half of that cohort, so it was like, I knew I wasn't the worst person that had ever played. I knew that wasn't true, so... So um, how did it progress? Did he... Was he nice to you, or did he continue to crush you? So he would do this thing where he would basically... Some lessons he would do a sort of crushing lesson, and other lessons he would do a sort of lifting lesson. And I realised after a while that he actually just did the same for the sometimes a whole bunch of students on the same day. So, for example, I remember this one time where my friend, I'd had my lesson earlier that day, and then she came rushing into the dormitory later that day, and she was like, oh, I had such a brilliant lesson. And like he told me that I played like an angel, and I didn't say, yeah, that's what he said to me this morning. You know, so he basically... he did? Yeah. So he basically just had a formula, essentially, that he was using. So some days people would come out really depressed out of their lessons because he'd said they weren't good or they hadn't done enough work. Um, but I do think it was a, just a sort of plan, really, to make you feel emotions. So either terribly upset or really, really thrilled. So when you were thrilled, you'd think he was brilliant, do you know what I mean? And when you were upset, you'd think, oh, I've got to work so much harder, I'm no good. And he tried to get under your skin by trying to be a bit of a friend, a confidant, didn't he? What did yes, he eventually. His first efforts were um, things like he would say um, you know if you practice really hard and you play this piece to me with no mistakes then 
you, I will give you some money. Um, so you'd get X number of pounds per piece. But I didn't find that motivating, so that didn't make any difference. And then um, after that, he would also say, he said, don't you think that you might practice harder if corporal punishment still existed? And he was like, imagine if you were going to be whipped naked in front of the school. Don't you think you would practice harder? And to that I said, no, I think I would give up if that was what was required. I didn't realise that he was asking that for a reason to see sort of how willing I'd be to go down that route. Because with other students, he used a punishment and reward scheme, which involved if you played things right, you got money. If you played it wrong, you would get some punishment like spanking or something like that but because I had said I because unknowingly I said I wouldn't accept that then he didn't ever try that so what did he try with you so then with me he finally was asking me all of these questions about my family he wanted to know what the relationship was like with my dad and I told him that dad was like not there very much and um he encouraged me to tell him things that I wasn't happy with about my family life and so on and one of the things about dad was that he was um, like a very kind man, but he wasn't, um, um, what's the word? It was basically that one time I had gone on this music course when I was nine and there was a teacher there who was kind of really, really friendly with all the little kids. And this man, he was quite physical he didn't do anything completely wrong, but I remember that when my dad came to pick me up from the course, this man had his arms around me and he was kind of cradling me and rocking me from side to side. And he was talking to my dad at the same time. And I was feeling physically sick from because I did not want that man touching me and I couldn't express that. And dad didn't say anything or he didn't even seem to think there was a problem. And so I, in my youngness, I just blamed him for not being like, get off what the hell are you doing with my daughter? And he didn't say that. And um, so I had this idea in my head that dad was kind of like um, weak and wouldn't protect me. And anyway, so I told Chris Ling that. And um, What did he say when you told him that story? He was kind of... He, he eventually said, you know, if you've got any problems, you know, you come to me. If you've got a problem with a teacher or a boyfriend or something like that. He's like, you can come to me. I will sort it out. So he was very He's much... making you dependent. Yeah, him. he wanted me to... So I, And when he said that, because I'd been bullied for my entire life, I was. I think that's why that really worked for me, because the idea of being protected, because I hadn't ever been felt prote- protected before, I was just, like, extremely keen to hear that someone was going to protect me. So I think that's when it became the grooming actually worked. But that took six months to get to that point with him. So... Um, all his work paid off when he kind of used that formula. And he used it to do what? What happened the first time he so, abused you? So basically I had been doing a concert or a series of concerts and then we were staying overnight at his house afterwards uh, because the concert was near his house. And um, there were various other students there, but he um, he had we were all sitting up late watching a film but he had told me that he wanted me to stay later after everyone else gone to bed because he wanted to discuss stuff to do with my concerts he also strangely wanted me to go and clean my teeth and he was just telling me why don't you just go upstairs and clean your teeth i was like i will do it when i go to bed and then he was like 
well, you could do it now. And I was like, I'll do it later when I go up to bed. And so he asked me three times to clean my teeth and I didn't understand why he wanted that and I didn't see any significance to it, so I didn't do it. Um, he also wanted me to get into my night clothes, which I did, which was these kind of silky pyjama things that I had. Anyway, so the others went up to bed and he's kept me there and... um he initially started by saying, you know, I had done well doing my concerts. And then he um, said that I must have sore shoulders after having done all of that work because I'd been practicing really hard. And he said he wanted to give me a massage on my shoulders. And so he... And I didn't feel that I could say no. Um, yeah, it would have been rude. And so I didn't say no. And I also did not realise at that point that things were... Um, going to be sexual if you saw what I mean because the reason I didn't know that was because well I was still quite young I was 14 about to be 15 but I wasn't particularly well developed and I knew that he already had his really pretty girlfriend so I didn't think I didn't think anyone actually would be interested in me at that point other than boys in my own year sort of thing so I had no idea that a grown man would be interested in a half grown girl so that's why I didn't realize so he gave me the shoulder massage and then he um said it would uh, that he's going to give me a whole back massage and it would be better if I lay on the floor so I lay down on the floor and he was massaging my back and I didn't want it but I couldn't think of, so I certainly didn't feel comfortable or relaxed at all and you still had your pajama top on. yeah so at that point I did but then he said it would be easier um, to massage me if I took it off so he took so because obviously it was kind of satiny and actually it was kind of in the way if you were actually trying to do a massage so he persuaded me to take that off and then I was still lying on my front on the floor and then he was massaging my back and and then he was kind of like now turn over we're going to do the other side and again even at that point I still wasn't like sure what that was going to involve but as soon as I turned over, he just started, you know, not doing massage at all, but just fondling my breasts. And that's when I realised that I'd missed all of the cues and I felt like it was too late to suddenly say, oh, hang on, what? Because I, I, yeah, and so I didn't know what to say and I just froze. I think actually that's quite a common reaction that you um, just kind of... I think in the shocked moment, you just don't know what to do or say. And when it's somebody that's almost like a father figure in your life, it's different as well. It's not just like some random person that you don't know. It's difficult to be honest in that situation. So I didn't feel that I could say no. Um, so then he said, we were going to go upstairs. So we went upstairs and into his bedroom. And he sort of... Put, um, had me lie down on the bed and then he got on top of me and started kissing me but it was such a strange and horrible kissing a sort of like very violent aggressive kind of kissing and my head was squashed up against the headboard and it was really uncomfortable and yeah horrible also he was kind of a lot bigger than me he was overweight and I sort of had that kind of crushed feeling 
Um, then um, after that, he was asking me if he can put his penis in my mouth. And I said no. And the reason I managed to say no to that was because I knew what a blowjob was. So I knew what intercourse was and I knew what a blowjob was. But all of the other stuff he didn't ask and I didn't know what they were anyway. So it kind of was difficult for me to define what, I don't know, I didn't feel like I could say what. Because if I'd said what I wanted to say, it would have been like, I feel absolutely <laughs> revolted and I want to throw up and run away and never be seen in this world ever again. But you can't really say that. <laughs> um, so after he was trying to ask me to put his penis in my mouth and after that he started, he put two fingers into my vagina and he will start sort of like putting his fingers in and out and he said, is that nice? And I, again, I just didn't know what to say because, of course, it was not nice. It was just like painful and really, really disgusting. And so I... um Eventually, I said that it was nice because I didn't know what else to say. So um, that was completely rank. And then after that, um, he asked me to turn around and he rubbed his penis against my back and then ejaculated onto my back. And then he just told me to go away and go to my room. And that was the end of that episode. So, yeah. So you went to bed and were you afraid? What did you think? I just felt so disgusting all over and I just I didn't know what to do. All I can say is that the feeling of whole body revoltingness was just complete and I was completely at a loss to understand the dynamics of what had happened because I was thinking, does that mean that he thinks that I fancy him? Does that mean he thinks that we're going to be in a sexual relationship? Because I would be like, I'd have to say that I wouldn't want that because and I couldn't understand like how it was that he had a girlfriend, but that he had done that. So I really couldn't understand it. Um, so, yeah, I kind of cleaned myself up and then eventually went to bed and, yeah. And then the next morning before I'd got up, he came into my room and... Um, sort of to tell me his narrative of what had happened. So um, he said that what had happened between us was a natural, a wonderful and a natural thing that happens between a man and a woman. And um, I said, what about your girlfriend? And he was like, what about her? And I was like, well, and he didn't even seem to understand what I was asking or why. So I didn't get a reply to that. And he just, then he was like, are you going to tell anybody? Are you going to tell your mother? And obviously he was waiting for me to say that I wouldn't. He said that if I did, he maybe might have to go to prison and that would be my fault. Um, and he said, anyway, I don't think people are going to believe you because there's me, a respected teacher on the one hand, and there's you, just a school kid on the other. He said people won't believe you. So he made me promise that I would never tell. Um, so, yeah, that was his version of it. So, yeah. For nine months, Christopher Ling repeatedly assaulted Laura, 
taking advantage of any situation he could. We were at his mother's house and I was having a lesson and I had to play a piece and he said if it doesn't sound passionate enough then in between we have to do something sexual to like make the music more passionate and um so he I would play it like just in a normal way and then and then he would fondle my breasts and then I had to play it again and then he would fondle my breasts and then I'd play it again um so and then the other times were at school so at school he would um say he wanted a coffee in the lesson we went to this little coffee room which didn't have a window in the door and he would then quickly uh, but any staff member could have come in at any moment uh, but they actually didn't uh, but yeah he would just yank down my top and sort of briefly and roughly fondle my breasts and then then we'd go back to the lesson what did so, you do when he did that i mean i just put up with it really because there was no sort of context for what are you supposed to do um I didn't know what to do, and I thought that if I'd said, if I'd complained or something, I felt like he would have insisted. But then, later on, when it actually stopped, it was a funny situation because he. Um, so the last time that it happened was um, I'd gone to his house again for one of these courses of his. Well, he would do these music courses in the holidays, and. He picked me up from the station and I um, got to the house and his girlfriend was there, but she was in a room off to the side crying and she didn't come out or say anything to me. And so she, there was obviously some bad issue going on with them. And he took me up to a bedroom and he just sort of immediately yanked down my top and started grabbing at me and the combination of her crying downstairs and the sort of sudden roughness of it I didn't know that I was going to say no but I just suddenly said no and then he immediately stopped and never touched me ever again and did he say anything no he didn't but what it made me feel was that I had sort of consented to it all along because I felt like oh my god I could have said no on day one and it, if he was going to have stopped then I would have said no back then and so I really felt like it was my fault after that because I was like I've put up with it and I needn't have so I really felt much more responsible after that of the way he stopped because if he had forced me then I could have blamed him more do you know what I mean but because he acted like it, it was all about that I did consent but I think that he knew that I think that he knew those kind of psychological things and so he wanted each person to feel as if they were to blame or to or that they had consented if you see what I mean perhaps Ling felt like he was pushing his luck in Britain he developed a new plan to take some of his students to America Laura was chosen to go she says she blocked out all thought of the sexual abuse to allow her to function normally the only thing I knew to do was to practice hard and like try to be a violinist. So I didn't have anything else that I felt I could sort of hang my sort of identity onto, if you see what I mean. Because I, by that point, hated myself like a hundred percent. Ever since the abuse happened, I, you know, already had a history of bullying, which meant that. I was used to everyone hating me, but then after the sexual abuse, then I hated myself as well. So 
in those situations, the feelings that you have are not really bearable. So you've got the option of feeling them and then having a breakdown, just stopping uh, with your whole life or blocking it all out and just carrying on like everything is normal. That's the only option you really have in that situation to carry on functioning. So that's what I did. Um, but I was also under his... I'd sort of taken on his view of me, which was that I was a, I was to be a violinist and I was to be sexy and attractive. That's Those were the two things that I was supposed to be. And so those were just my two goals. And so the idea of going to America and um, he said that we would become soloists, um, you know, that's, that's what I wanted. And so I said that I wanted to go. So, yeah. But I think it is really hard to understand why someone that has been abused would do that and not choose that option to escape. But you see, that's assuming that... So, for example, let's say you get attra- attacked by a stranger and you know it's not your fault. The response to that is different to if you've been led to feel that it is your fault and that you are a disgusting person. Then you you see yourself very differently, I think. Then you found out on a visit home that another girl, a girl, had made an allegation against Ling. Yes. Did that change everything? There were there were four factors that meant that I decided that I would tell. So what happened was I was in I was in America with him for five months, um, and then we came home for Christmas break, which had already been planned. So, um, and then I was told like. By the way, the police are coming to see you tomorrow morning. So I had zero time to um, think about it, really. Um, but the factors that made me decide I would tell them was, one, that another girl had disclosed, which meant that it wasn't just me, yes. Secondly, I thought the police are coming because they kind of already know that it's quite likely that there's going to be something. So they're going to be questioning me in a in a way where they will not accept just a sort of like brush off kind of answers. Um, thirdly, um, he was in another country, so he was that bit further away. And fourthly, by then I hated him so intensely because basically the, re- the relationship between me and him changed when we were in America. So by the time at the end of those five months, I hated him because so much. Well, when we got to America, for some reason, instead of having me on a roller coaster of emotions, which was his previous technique. He just decided that he he was just horrible to me all the time. Um, and he wasn't like that to the other students. So I don't know what his problem was. I don't know why he took me with him because he, it was like he hated everything that I did. And he would say that I was too fat to wear the clothes that I had. He said that I ate too much, that I was dirty, that I didn't wash, that... I um, and he gave me one lesson in five months, you know. So we were supposed to be like working full time towards doing everything, and he basically I was just off his list, and he just every potential situation he could, he would humiliate me in front of people. So that was his, you know, he'd sort of mention things to do with unwashed bedding and how I had this stupid toilet that didn't work properly because I had the crappiest room in the house, and. Um, yeah, it would only flush once every 45 minutes. So if you used it and then flushed it and then someone else went, they couldn't flush it. 
So then the person after that would find an unflushed toilet. Yeah, so that was not my fault. But he would tell people in public that I would leave my toilet unflushed. These kind of humiliations and stuff. And then he would say that I looked like a prostitute, that I was fat, that he wouldn't let me eat anything. Um, he also didn't want me phoning home. So I phoned home once in five months. And that he found out about because he saw it on the phone bill. Um, the thing is, is that when I was okay, it was quite possible that I wasn't going to phone loads because I was in an international situation. I used to write letters, so it wasn't really weird that I hadn't phoned. However, um, yeah, he didn't want me phoning, and he, I used to like waiting for, at the letterbox to see if there's any letters for me, and he stopped me from doing that. Um, I think he started to actually um, check who the letters were from and then remove some of them. Anyway, so um, basically he was incredibly horrible for that entire time. And, yeah. But Which oh, brought, brings you back to yeah. the point where the police came Yeah, round. exactly. So the mm. fact that I hated him so much by then meant that I was much more willing to tell them, basically. So Laura had felt so alone, but in fact... She was one of many. Ten students gave statements detailing the abuse Ling had put them through. The police said she couldn't go back to America, and so, a few days later, she found herself back at Cheatham's. The school did not address the issue at all, so there was no discussion of it at all. Um, so it was a bit of a strange limbo, and the only people that did speak to me about it were... Um, so there were some disgusting boys who thought that I must be sexually experienced now, so they asked me disgusting questions um, with an expectation that I was then willing to engage in sexual activity, I guess. And, you know, if you're sitting somewhere, they'd be trying to see your pants or implying that you weren't wearing any or that you were a slag or these kind of things. Um, so they were the people that spoke to me. Um, there was also... I met the mother of his wife who was at the school one day and she um, shouted at me and said that my schoolgirl fantasies had ruined a good man and I was just like I have no idea what kind of fantasies you think I have but these are definitely not it <laughs> um, so that was horrible as well so it was this kind of emptiness and silence So despite all the testimony against Ling the case was dropped We'll find out more about why shortly Let's move forward in time now to 2015. The law finally seemed to be catching up with Ling. The British police had taken up his case again and had asked the American authorities to extradite him back to the UK, where he faced charges for 77 counts of sexual abuse. But as US Marshals arrived to arrest him, he shot himself, denying his victims the chance of seeing him face justice. By committing suicide, he continued to exert his control, as he'd done to his victims throughout. Laura told me how she felt when she heard. I was shocked that he did commit suicide. Um, yeah, I was very shocked. So, Were you glad that he'd gone? In a practical sense, I ended up glad. So, like, now, when I think about things, sometimes, like, when I wake up, I think, oh, no, but he's dead, so... I don't have to think that he might come and get me. Or, cause Did I you thought, think he was going to come and get you? Yeah, because I had told. I really thought he's going to come and find a way to. Um, so I was always kind of like didn't want to be on social media or anything. So until he died, I didn't dare to have a sort of public 
um, presence at all because I thought he's going to find me and do something horrible to me. So yeah, I was convinced of that up until he died. In 2019, Laura gave evidence at the independent inquiry into child sexual abuse. It was set up because of serious concerns that some organisations had failed and were continuing to fail to protect children from sexual abuse. As a statutory inquiry, they have unique authority to address issues that have persisted despite previous inquiries and attempts at reform. With the support of her legal team, the inquiry was the first time Laura heard the full details of the case against Christopher Ling. How his victims' complaints have been ignored, how crimes have been covered up and mistakes that have been made. It emerged that the criminal investigation in the 1990s was not dropped through lack of evidence, but because of a mistake by the Crown Prosecution Service, who wrongly thought they couldn't extradite Ling from America. Laura told me how that made her feel. I suppose I started thinking about the implications of that. I think the worst is that I do think he went on to then abuse more people. So I think that's the main implication of it, which is that he had another 20 years or whatever it is, 20, 30 years of abusing, because I don't think that he would be able to stop doing it. I know that he just carried on, um, and he was abusing other girls. After he'd finished with me, he abused other people. So, Did they tell you? Did you know? No. No one has ever told me. I only knew sort of like in retrospect after the police case, really. So there are quite a few people that I've spoken to that I'm the only person, apart from the police, that they've told, if you see what I mean, because I reached out to other people that I was aware of, because we did some, uh, yeah, after the, there was some press um, interviews, and I said, could you pass on my details to um, other people in case they want someone to talk to who knows what it's like. After the abuse had stopped, Laura went into her shell and suffered depression. She threw herself into playing the violin, but excessive practice and tension led to tendonitis. Eventually, the girl who always identified herself above all as a violinist changed path and found a new profession. She slowly rebuilt her life, but the effects of the abuse go on right up till today. I think a permanent sort of hypervigilance and wariness, I think, is always there. And What are you hypervigilant about? everything. So I do not trust anyone to, for anything actually, really. So I always want to be responsible for myself. I need to know what's happening. I don't like people telling me what to do. I need to understand why, what is it for. So I'm very aware of myself and my safety. And so I I don't like doing anything where you might lose concentration. So I don't drink. I wouldn't dream of taking any drug which affects your mind. Um, that would be completely no-no. <laughs> and I wouldn't have, like, earplugs in at night or anything like that. I just need to be able to know what's going on all the time. And in terms of what happened to you when you were at Cheatham's, are you angry about the lack of support you had? I do have things that I feel were completely unacceptable. There were students who had tried to report that Ling was doing inappropriate things. And that was before we left for America. And their reports were sort of belittled and brushed under the carpet and not taken seriously. So that by the time Chris Ling wanted to leave and take students with him, the school wasn't in a position to say, you shouldn't go because he's 
a person of dubious safety because they hadn't done their own investigation, they hadn't spoken to the police, so there was nothing really concrete against him. So the school wasn't able to say, oh, by the way, you shouldn't go, because we know that he has behaved inappropriately with students before. So they didn't say that, they just said, don't go, because um, you won't be able to do your A-levels. And that was the only thing, the only reason they gave to that. But they actually had previously received reports that he had done inappropriate things, but they hadn't taken them seriously. So they basically let me go and live with a paedophile abroad without saying anything and if there had been mandatory reporting they would have had to have reported that and taken those things seriously that would have made a massive impact for me personally because the bit in America was by far worse than the sexual abuse itself it was you know emotionally um, so, absolutely terrible so what needs to change is it that, that there has to be compulsory reporting what if a pupil reports to a school, the school then has to tell the police immediately? What, what do you yeah, think should well, happen? I think the issue is that one of the problems when, when they don't have mandatory reporting is that it's up to the person receiving the report to decide if it's serious or not. Now, that person would be agonising over whether to get this staff member in quite a lot of trouble by starting an investigation. Um, so they're kind of, obviously, there's lots of reasons why you wouldn't want to start. But if you had to then it takes it out of your hands and then you just say I know that I have to by law so I'm going to report it it doesn't matter if it turns out to be a false report because that's the law you just have to. Mandatory reporting is one of the things we'll be picking up on in our next episode. Laura herself is now in a happy marriage which has helped her feel more secure. Since I got married I would say that things have improved a lot for me in terms of I guess dealing with the effects of the sexual abuse itself after the abuse. I would often dress in a very sexy way, but I couldn't actually engage in sexual activity because I found it abhorrent and it would bring up feelings of self-hatred and I thought everything was disgusting and I couldn't really bear it. But at the same time, I wanted people to notice me. Um, and that was a, a period that lasted quite a long time. And then when I was in my early 20s, at which point I had given up hope at all of ever meeting somebody. Um, I did meet my husband, and since being with him, it's been a lot better because I feel like I only have to be with him. I don't have to deal with the rest of the male world, and I don't have to try to be sexy anymore. I just have to be me, and that's enough, and that's all. And so that has really helped, actually just being in a safe situation where I can choose what happens and I'm, I'm safe. Thanks so much to Laura for telling us her story. We're going to continue with this subject in our next episode where we'll hear from Laura's mother who will tell us her recollections of the abuse her daughter suffered. The police came to our house and we had an interview with the police who told us about it. It was absolutely devastating because that's when the change in her was so obvious it was absolutely tragic she was crushed I couldn't reach her I'd wanted to help her it was like she was in a concrete vault
We'll also hear from Richard Scorer, Laura's lawyer, who will tell us about mandatory reporting, as well as from another victim of Christopher Ling. If you want to know more about this story or other episodes of The Case Files, have a look at our website, slatergordon.co.uk forward slash podcast. Or head over to our social media channels and search hashtag CaseFilesPod and join the conversation. I'm Kate Chabot. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.